Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. And along with me is Jonathan Bridget. We're actually still wondering if anyone can hear us. Yeah, that's true. Um, don't know if you can. Yeah, we are uh, trying to trying to figure out new software because we got a new computer. We got a new computer. Can Yay! someone let us know if you can hear us or not? That would be really really helpful. Yeah. Um, as I'm still trying to figure out some things, so just give us just new computer a second. Uh, I see some people commenting. I don't see anybody commenting. Sounds good. What, who says sounds good? Somebody, somebody Jose says, sounds, says good. Uh, sounds good. Sounds good, Jose? See, we got a new computer because our patrons yes, make that possible okay. for us to get things like new computers. So the upside is everything's going to work so much better. The downside is we have to figure out how to make everything work so much better. But yeah. we are so thankful for our patrons because they can't see it. Well, actually, I'm going to... Can I mess with that? I wouldn't do that. Oh, no. yeah, don't do that. Uh, what have you done to the Pritchett cam now? What have I done? I there don't know. I know. wanted to show everybody the new computer. Oh, Pritchett. Pritchett cam is going to be out of order. Uh, That's good enough. Leave it there. Don't touch it. Okay. Don't touch it. Well, Why are you touching things? Because I wanted to show off <laughs> our new computer because it's super nice. Yeah, well, uh, we're glad that you're all here, and uh, we are. Yes, we do have a new computer. It's uh, it's because of there's a delay. It's between fancy when and we send our comments and when you see them. Approximately 15 seconds. Just how you do this? Okay, so uh, yeah, we're gonna cut all this out later for the uh, in the video using no YouTube Studio. Not. Yeah, there could be new people, and nah. they're looking at this thinking these bozos don't even know how to use a computer. All right, so. Um, well, technically one of these bozos doesn't. So, so this, this has to be, you. this has to be about a, um, hour long live stream today. So I can't, we can't go as long as we normally do. Some of you are thinking, thank God. Mm -hmm. Um, but the reason for that is because I have to go to an, another city today to, because my daughter is, a, um, is a savant gymnast. And so I've got to go watch her compete. And so we're going to go do that. It's a, a punch bowl haircut says, what kind of computer? It's a Mac. Um, that way, He's half, part half, of that the audience, half the audience is going to yay and half the audience is going to nay. But uh, He's a part of the Mac cult. But anyway, so we, we came up with this topic today because it's something that interests us. Um, I had just been listening to some podcasts about uh, biblical archaeology. I used to be a subscriber to Biblical Archaeology Review. Um, and so I thought, hey, let's let's I came across news, a Christianity Today article that gave the top 10 archaeological discoveries of 2020. So that's what I was going to go with. 
But then Jonathan Pritchett and Andy Armstrong, who's another employee here at Trinity, said, man, don't do the top 10 of 2020. Do the top 10 like of all time. So I went and found that. The thing is, I don't feel like it's going to dazzle you as much as um, we might have suspected. But uh, we're going to. But, but here's what it does do. Here's a good way to open this up. So when you look at biblical archaeology, um, there are a lot of, of people groups and individual persons and battles and things like that, that people used to think or that people think used to think didn't exist. There was a period of time where David was thought to be a myth or the Hittites weren't supposed to exist. Now, today, if you go to like when I was in Turkey, I think I said this recently on a stream, like every single town that you come to is, well, this was a, originally a Hittite settlement or something. Uh, that's because though people thought that the Hittites were made up um, and, and uh, when Abraham bought from the Hittites to, to isn't that who Abraham bought a plate place to bury? Anyway, um, one day somebody turns over a brick and lo and behold, Hittites. And so stuff like that is helpful because what it does is it confirms the historicity of the Bible. Now, the criticism that comes often from skeptics is, like Matt Dillahunty says this all the time, just because you prove that New York City exists doesn't mean that Spider-Man is real. Well, that's true. If people 2,000 years from now proved that someone writing about New York City from our time described all the streets correctly in some of the events, it doesn't mean that Spider-Man is real, right? And the idea there is, even if the biblical authors uh, faithfully gave us historical events and places and times and locations, it doesn't mean that the supernatural is real. But here's what it does do. It does mean that the biblical auth that that's not a criticism you can bring against the biblical authors. Yeah, that they're unreliable with yeah. regard to historical facts and locations and data and things like that. Yeah, and another thing that, that if you just had, like, say, the Gospels, um, we're not going to talk much about the Gospels today, but if you had the Gospels drop out of the sky and land in front of you on a beach and you had no idea about Jesus or no idea about Christianity, no idea about any of these things, and you picked up these books, what sort of a conclusion would you come to about what this author is trying to convey? Not whether it's true, not whether Jesus rose from the dead or did miracles or anything like that, but what sort of a conclusion would you come to about the about the type of genre or literature that this person is trying to convey to you. So if you open up Luke and Luke says there had been many people who have set about to write an account of this, but I thought it was uh, useful of Theophilus to write down in orderly fashion how things really happened. Okay, I'm reading that. I'm thinking, okay, this guy is at least purporting to give me history. So when we check the historical stuff out, and it does check out. It does count in favor. It may not prove the miraculous, but it's a it's a criticism that can't be leveled against it. And so uh, that has convinced a lot of uh, people. Um, what books would you recommend on biblical archaeology? Isn't that where we would recommend Kitchen? Well, there's there's uh, well, he's got several things that I'd recommend. Um, and if you're a patron, Dr. like Pritchett's on the reliability, you. well, I'm sending him them Ancient Orient and Old Testament. I'm not sending yeah. them. Uh, on the reliability of the Old Testament. That's a good book to start with. I, I'm not immersed in the literature of biblical archaeology myself. I, some, it's on the to-do list, but... You look really... This is not good, Bridget. Look what you've done to the camera. It's probably got my fingerprint. Just, just look at what you've done. Let's try to help it. Let's try to help it out. There we go. This is, isn't this excellent broadcasting? Blurry Pritchett's still better looking. You're blurry. You, I can't do anything about that. Then, 
So, um, yeah, so neither one of us are experts in the area of biblical archaeology. One thing I would recommend is there's a great book. Um, it's on my bookshelf, but I'm not going to go get it. Uh, that is simply a study Bible. That use, there's a study Bible that is the biblical archaeology study Bible, and it's super interesting. For example, I'll give you one thing that I find really fascinating that is not in the uh, list that we're going to look at today. There's a couple of things that are not in the list that I think probably should be. One of those is um, there's some evidence that, so you know in the story when, when Moses goes and uh, confronts Pharaoh about letting the, the, the children of God, go, the children of Israel go, um, he says he's, he actually doesn't do it, but then he actually makes it harder on them because now they're going to have to make their own bricks. Well, there is a, uh, a city wall or something that may date to the period, and the bottom sections of it are a more solid brick, like they were professionally made. Uh, and the way you'd make brick is to put like sticks and, and, and stuff like that and then cover it with this mud that would harden and those kind of things. Um, but as you get closer to the top, the bricks are more poorly made and falling apart more easily. Well, that would actually support the notion that you had um, people who were uh, who, who started making their own bricks. So stuff like that is super interesting. Another super interesting thing is uh, Sennacherib's cylinder. Sennacherib's cylinder is, I, as I understand it, I think it's in Chicago at a museum, the Field Museum, maybe, I'm not sure. Um, and it was a, uh, I think it was Sennacherib was up against Hezekiah, but I could be wrong. But it, it details basically what happened. And he said, it says something on Sennacherib's cylinder, something like, I had, um, I had Hezekiah caged like a bird. And then in the Bible, it says something like almost exactly like that. And so it, it confirms that story. So there's some interesting things that come out of biblical archaeology. And so um, even if it doesn't necessarily prove the miraculous, it does help. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. And actually, before I do that, we already got a super chat. And I really appreciate that from Jim Amberg. Hey. Jim Amberg. Uh, Titus Kennedy has a great book on this, Thunder Stolen. No, that's great. I'm glad you're adding that for us there because um, that's that's really helpful. And uh, somebody else gives a super chat. Angel right. WVM gives $10. Thank you. Can the Rebel Alliance be considered terrorist considering they fought the controlling government and destroyed the Death Star, which most likely had innocent civilian workers on the Death Star? Yeah, yeah. this actually comes up as a uh, point of discussion in the original film Clerks, which you should mm -hmm. not see. But in my younger, more carnal days, I did see there's a whole debate about this. Um, uh, one, one thing we do know is that now in Rogue One, uh, at least segments of the Rebel Alliance are very much seen as terrorist organizations. I so, thought it was a funny um, movie. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't care for the sequel, but I thought the original Clerks was funny. How and yeah, then they discussed that in an episode of The Mandalorian itself. Mm. Yeah, that's right. At one the, of the final ones. When, in yeah, season the, two. on the... Season finale, I think. <sighs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I'm sympathetic to that argument. And the only way that relates to uh, biblical archaeology, it doesn't. But we do see Ray doing a bit of archaeology in um, the final Star Wars film that's been released. All right. So uh, the first thing on the list, this is a list that comes from Tim Challey's blog. I thought he did a good job putting this stuff together and commenting on it. Don't yeah. know much else about Tim Challey's. I, I liked the original article we were going to do. Better. You liked the original article? The one about 2020? Yeah. So, so did someone in the comments I saw. Well, we could go back to that. Should we go do that one or should we do this one? Oh, you're here. All right. So the first thing he puts down is the Rosetta Stone. And initially, you might think, well, how is that helpful? He says, in, in 1798, Napoleon invaded Egypt. He brought with him a scientific team of scholars and draftsmen 
To survey the monuments of the land, the most important find of the expedition was the Rosetta Stone. It proved to be valuable as the key of deciphering ancient Egyptian hier hieroglyphics. The stone dates to the period of Ptolemy V and was inscribed in three scripts, demotic, Greek, and hieroglyphic. The Greek, well known to scholars at the time, proved to be a translation of the ancient Gr Egyptian language on the stone. Translations of hieroglyphics marked the beginning of the study of Egy uh, ancient Egyptian texts and grammar and provided the basis for modern Egyptology. So... What this does, well, how, what do you think the relevance of this is for biblical archaeology, Jonathan? Well, obviously languages and stuff, but... Egypt is a biblical, there's a, involved in the biblical story. Very so. significantly yeah. involved in the biblical story. I mean, that's the exodus, right? Yeah, we're going to move pretty qu quick through this, though. Yeah, I liked the, I want, this is, for for all the talk that I give about not doing any prep, I actually did two different show preps, and then you changed <laughs> Changed it again before today, so yeah. Well, I just want to put know. that out there. That I, I just assume you haven't thought much about it until we get in here. <laughs> the, the exception to that that I've seen is the one we did on the, uh, Shroud. the Shroud of Turin, which in and of itself, uh, or is the an topics I pick discovery. back when you used to let me do that. Yeah. The Dead Sea Scrolls are number two on the list. Obviously, that's very important. In 1947, Shepard stumbled upon a cave in a rugged, arid area on the west side of the Dead Sea. You've been there, Jonathan? I have. I've been there, too. What they discovered was soon proclaimed the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. Over the next few years, other similar remote caves in the area were found. What did these caves contain? Over 800 fragmentary documents, mainly consisting of Hebrew writings in leather, with a few on parchment, including fragments of 190 biblical scrolls. Most of these are small, containing no more than one-tenth of a book. However, a complete Isaiah scroll has been found. Almost every Old Testament book is present, and there are also other writings valued by the community that dwelt in those caves. If you, uh, if you, so what this, how this is helpful in confirming some of the biblical story is, if people were skeptical that Christians had come in and monkeyed with certain things like in Isaiah to make it sound more messianic or something. If anyone was concerned about any of those kind of things, well, here we have um, uh, stuff that, that's, that's really, yeah, really, really important contextual criticism stuff. But, yeah. uh, but also, for if you're into New Testament studies, you, you also want to read some of the later writings that they had there as well. Yeah, and like one of the things about them they told us was the, the way to conceptualize how valuable this find was, not just the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Essene community, the, the group of Jewish uh, uh, people that were living out there in the desert, the Essenes, with which John the Baptist may have uh, hung out when he was in the—who knows? But some people think that. But here's, here's the thing about them. It's like they were walking around and scrolls were just falling off of them everywhere. And so their, um, their area is, is really that important. That comment deserves a— Which one? Mr. Timotheus Ward— in my more carnal days. Yeah. But Braxton, he is such a PK. You have no idea how much of a PK he is. <laughs> I'm a Boy he Scout. Is, he is a 40-year-old PK. Someone mentioned Captain America. He's obviously the best Avenger no, because of Yeah, but his Tim Stratton's morality. Captain America. Sorry, you're not. I'm not trying player. to be Captain America. Yeah. Like Tim, I aspire to be Captain America. Tim yeah. could say something he's like closer, what Paul said though. about Jesus. Tim, Because he's say, also got that he's awesome and can fight people kind of thing going on. Tim, Tim, what I was going to say is Tim could say, you don't see, you don't like Paul say, you don't see Jesus. You see me. So, so follow me and yeah. look at, look to me. He could say that you don't see. Hey, I imitated so to Tim as Tim imitated Paul who imitated Christ because I went and got in shape like Tim Stratton was. Oh, uh, Eddie Vasquez got my back. Braxton looks 29. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much. 
All right, so back to this. Uh, these these scrolls predate, at least some of them, the uh, the time of Christ, because it appears the earliest scrolls date to the mid-3rd century B.C., and most of the 1st or 2nd centuries B.C. Perhaps the greatest contribution of this find is to our understanding of the transmission of the biblical text. It is encouraging to note that the differences are minimal between the Old Testament text of the Dead Sea Scrolls and various editions of the Hebrew text produced a thousand yeah, years Yeah, I mean, later. not unlike any that you would find from any textual variant to any other textual variant. And the family. meaning of the text yeah, is not right. affected. Right, at all, yeah. So that's that's important to, to to point out. Programmer asked, "Do you still read biblical archaeology review?" No. Um, the last time I had a subscription and read it regularly was when I was pastoring in McMinnville, Tennessee. I had subscriptions to that and Skeptic Magazine, and I read those one right after the other every every week when they came. See, that would have been you know what was that two thousand two, two thousand three, somewhere in there for you, Braxton. Yep. Four, yeah, see, two, that would have been four. that w- biblical archaeology um, would have been the uh, number two or number three behind evolution for people who are interested in apologetics, you know, close to 20 years ago. Sadly, it has kind of fallen out of fashion for Christian apologists to really deep dive. And there are apologists out there since we have so many Christian apologists on YouTube. One of you YouTubers. Uh, out there, you need to go become the expert on this stuff. Yeah, you should. Uh, Elizabeth, we're Maines, too old to become good at anything more than we're already. Good Elizabeth at. Maine but says, "Yes, folks. Captain America is the best." He says, "There's only one God, ma'am, and he doesn't dress like that." I don't know how he squares that with the fact that in his universe he actually meets another God. Uh, but uh, well, he was saying that about Thor. He was like, oh, "That's yeah, exactly okay. who he was say- saying it about." I got you, and he was right. Yeah, uh, Chris says Braxton probably thinks uh, that heck is a cuss word. No, I use heck. Um, my daughter said to me when she was very young, she said, I said, what the heck? And she said, what the heck? She said, what is the heck? <laughs> what, yeah, is the what, heck? what is heck? <laughs> it's a cousin to hell. Yeah. Um, okay, Let, let's get back to this. So, so there's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Number yeah. three is the Ketef Hinnom Scrolls. In 1979, Israeli archaeologist Gabriel Barke was excavating a burial cave at Ketef Hinnom, just southwest of Jerusalem. The tomb was a typical late Iron Age, late 7th century B.C. burial structure. The typical Judean burial at this time took place in a rock-cut cave. When a person died, he was placed on a burial bench in the tomb along with personal items such as vases, jewelry, or trinkets. Once the body decayed, the bones of the people were placed in a box beneath the burial bench. When the team began to excavate the box, they came upon two small silver scrolls. Since the scrolls were metal, the archaeologists had a really hard time getting them open and all sorts of things. One of them said Yahweh. After much work, they were able to read the entire scroll. It contained the priestly benediction from number six. Uh, The smaller scroll also contained the benediction from number six. It took so long to unroll and decipher the scrolls that the material was not published until 1989. These two scrolls are relatively unknown, but they can be seen today in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. Now, why are they important? Well, they predate the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls by more than 400 years and are thus helpful in matters of textual criticism. Many authors have argued that the priestly benediction was written after the exile with its earliest date from the 4th century B.C. Now we have physical examples of the benediction from the late 7th century B.C. In addition to the discovery of the two plaques of the same benediction in a burial site underscores the centrality of the priestly benediction to the religion of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. You impressed with that one, Pritchett? I don't know. You know, what fascinates me, though, is not really a lot of this, you know, what, 900 to 500 B.C. stuff. 
I really like all of the excavation stuff for the New Testament. That's really more that my is interest. more interesting because you know I, I look at I look at stuff when when you can look at headgear in Corinth for for the pagans and who wore headgear, and then you read First uh, Corinthians eleven per se. That kind of stuff is what I find interesting. Just the everyday items that give you more background into the. Uh, sociocultural milieu of of the world so it's it's the common artifacts that i think are actually more interesting than ha see we can prove that this city was here and that this this happened and that this king existed or that king existed i mean the standard line for most evangelicals i i would assume is and you can find this discussion in um what was that that five views book on biblical inerrancy with uh, Moeller and Enns and Bird and Van Hooser and some other what about so Jericho mm-hmm. like you know the standard line for evangelicals is when in doubt with the actual archaeological evidence just trust the Bible and it'll get sorted out later sure. and uh, there's merit to that but there's also merit to now wait a minute. But if there is no evidence, maybe that challenges our readings of the text, too. And I don't lean that way, but you've got to always stay open to it. Well, when I'm open, to, I'm open you to know. all of it. But what strikes me is that you, you wait long enough. That's what somebody I was get always to. finds You wait it. long enough, and, and all of a sudden the data comes back around. That's, that, yeah. that's the thing. So while I understand the evangelical line, and I understand the criticism of it, it seems like every year, which was what I was going to— open with if we were talking about the 2020 discoveries is it's always another notch you Mm -hmm. know for the reliability of the old testament scriptures now i mean archaeology seems to be a messy discipline when you're out in the field right yeah and then when it goes from the field to the lab and then from the lab to the towers to do research it gets even messier and messier so I remember the the times that I've dipped my toe into the discussions in biblical archaeology. They can be messy, but that for me is exciting, right? Because I, I I don't you know when you're reading atheist ph- philosophical challenges to Christianity, and you hear a lot about that that that's fun for a while, but then it just gets monotonous. So when you read the other kinds of challenges to biblical, and then you have this record that Christians have of constant confirmation. You know, yeah. maybe and, and in the last 200 years, maybe that confirmation takes past your lifetime mm-hmm. because we're confirming things that people were skeptical of 50 and 60 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. So it it's one of those challenges for some people that you don't get it all at once and you may not even get it all in your lifetime. But the trajectory of biblical archaeology tends to favor and be in the direction towards Scripture. Now, there's still big looming questions out there. I know that Jericho is one of those. I know that the Exodus, people have all sorts of arguments in and around the Exodus story, you know, for and against it being a historical event. But Mm -hmm. the trajectory of all of this seems to be towards the biblical. Amen. I want to show you guys something if it'll show up here. Um, Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. There it is. That is, so those of you who give $50 or more before we go on, uh, those of you who give $50 or more are going to receive a page out of an 1838 uh, edition of um, uh, William Paley's Natural Theology 
that we have. We collect these pages of things, and uh, we came upon some of these. And here's the thing. You see how, by the way, this still, we had a thing that ended on New Year's Eve, but this is ongoing. If you give $50 or more, you will receive one of these. Until we're um, out of pages. Until we're out of pages. Uh, and let us hope we run out of pages so yeah. we can buy me a nice computer. Yeah. <laughs> what, what you see here, um, if you notice, the, one of the ones in the middle and one on the end have images on them because there are a number of illustrations in the book. Each of these that I'm sending out now has, uh, has text on one side, and I've put another page with illustration on the back side. Now, there are 14 people who are receiving these, and I don't know if I have enough of the illustrations. So, so, so I'll at least hold up to my original word and give everyone a page. Uh, I'm going to try to give everyone an illustration. Too. But but the but the are we saying the big money people, the big contributors? I the could big say donors? the people that give like yeah. What now? The 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 bigger the donation, the more likely you're to get it. Because you can actually you know. I'll make sure everyone that gives a hundred dollars is definitely getting. Right, because you yeah. can because the way those frames are, you can just hang it one way, and yeah. then if you get tired of looking at that for a while, you can yeah. flop it around. Uh, Elizabeth yeah. Maine says, do you guys know how they date these artifacts, carbon dating or some other method? I heard carbon dating can be unreliable if the material being tested is compromised in some way. They have, I think they have more than one way, but carbon dating is often a way. We, when we talked about the Shroud. Um, Shroud of Turin, we talked about that. I don't know how they do yeah. it with like stone stuff. Maybe they can still do that. But um, carbon dating gets you to the reason we hear so much about the uh, the the, the reason we hear so much about carbon dating not being helpful is uh, is because when, there's a, there's a limit to how far you can go back with carbon dating. Carbon dating gets you to uh, I think thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years. I could be wrong. And uh, potassium argon dating, for example, is the one that's supposed to get you to millions of years. Right. Uh, and what I remember from my days listening to Ken Ham and studying that stuff is that the potassium argon dating, you can date a rock that has hardened yesterday from volcano, uh, like lava that's hardened, and it'll date to millions of years, even though it formed yesterday. Now, I'm not a geologist, so I'm just telling, passing on what I've heard. So don't take me as an expert. You know, when I went to the Creation Museum... And, you know, I'm not a young earth creationist and I'm not even a fan of, you know, those kinds of scientific concordism readings of the Old Testament. But other than that last little bit that you get to in the museum where, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to go to hell, your kids are going to go to hell and your nation's going to go to hell because Christians are teaching old earth or whatever. You know, that little part where you walk down into the... Other than that little part at the end of the museum, overall, I thought it was a pretty good production. And I got to hear Ken Ham speak at the Creation Museum. I mean, what more can you want when you... When you and I thought his speech was okay. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not gonna needlessly pick on the man, but I, not. I thought that the production value of the mm. museum, forget whether, whether or not you think they're right or whatever because i certainly don't but i mean i went to go see it and i had a good time and i thought it was really well done for what it right. was i was just annoyed by that last little bit that you know if you teach um your kids will end up on crack if you teach old earth right and i just thought that yeah. was silly all right vera says staff archaeologist here be careful you're in my neck of the woods now <laughs> all right we need a staff or why yeah we should have had you on right. to talk about some of this stuff. Well, when we get to the article that I actually read, we, we, you know, in a future episode, since we'll, we'll have her on. Okay, Moabite stone, number five. In 1868, a missionary in Jerusalem found a stone tablet for sale that appeared to be from ancient times. The sellers broke the tablet into a number of pieces to sell them one at a time to make more money. 
Fortunately, a copy of the tablet was made prior to the break. This copy is in the Louvre today. On the tablet is a text written in Moabite dating to the 9th century BC. It was perhaps a victory stone erected by King Mesha to commemorate his military achievements. The text begins, I am Mesha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab. Prominent in the text is the king's vision of war fought with Israel in 850 BC, in which Moab revolted against King Jehoram of the northern kingdom of Israel. See, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Soon after the death of Ahab. A particular interest is that the Bible records the same incident in 2 Kings 3. The two accounts differ in perspective. Misha emphasizes his victories over Israel in capturing cities under Israelite control. The biblical writer, to the contrary, highlights Israel's success in counterattacks against the Moabites. But see, there you have an example of something that we found that that uh, corroborates something in the Bible from very long ago in the Old now Testament. The, yeah, the event happened, the perspectives are obviously different, and there's probably propaganda going on. And, and, of course, what you do is you default to the biblical text. But still, it's interesting to see that. Jim Amberg says, did you make it to the Ark as well or just the Creation Museum? You've been to the Ark, right? I've been to I, both. I've, I've not been to both. The Ark wasn't built when I... I see, love the Ark. See, when I first came to work at Trinity here in Evansville, you, you you look at what's close to go do. And so back when we first got here, Saint is it Saint Petersburg, Kentucky? I don't know. Nobody cares. Anyway, wherever the arch or wherever the creation museum is, I think it's Saint Petersburg or something like that. You, you you go do that because you're new and that's within three hour drive. So the Ark wasn't built when I went there. But my favorite thing about that whole trip that we took to the thing was eating the chili in uh across the river at at a chili chain i can't remember the name of it though but they give you a bowl of chili and then piled high with cheese it's somewhere um in in was it cincinnati maybe i have no idea what you're talking about i don't know but somewhere near the arc you can go to it you can go to a chili skyline Skyline. chili yes that's that's it what's wrong with that's 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 worth the trip out to gold star and skyline yeah we had both and both of those they're worth the trip you get what's called a three-way and you get it's got uh hot dog chili cheese all that stuff. yeah that's worth i mean that was as awesome i like chili though yeah everybody. but that was that was that that made the whole trip for me that's okay. worth the, the Creation um, Museum to eat the... So, the Lakesh letters. In the 1930s, J.L. Starkey excavated the site of Lakesh. He discovered a layer of debris heavily destroyed and burned with fire by the hands of the... Uh, at the hands of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 589 to 588 BC. Starkey unearthed 18 Ostraka, I'm probably saying that right, wrong, in the burnt debris of a guard room between the inner and outer gates of the city. An Ostraka is an inscription written in ink on pottery shards. Most of the Ostraka were uh, correspondence, although a few were lists of names. The contents of the Ostraka were fragmentary. The only third of them are sufficiently preserved to be intelligible. The date of the Ostraka is generally immediately prior to the destruction of Lachish by the Babylonians. A number of the letters are written by a man named Hoshaya, Hoshaya, we're going to say Hoshaya, to a military commander named Yaosh. The common interpretation is that Hoshaya was the commander of a fortress outside Lachish, writing to Yaosh, the commander of Lachish. Other commentators believe Hoshaya was the military chief of Lachish, and Yaosh, a high official in Jerusalem. One of the letters closed with the statement, Let my lord know that we are watching for the signals of Lachish according to all the indications which my lord hath given, for we cannot see Azekah. Azekah. Hoshaya was referring to signal fires from one Judean city to another, and the context appears to be the Babylonian assault soon to come. So more corroboration of events described in the Bible. 
Now, this one's interesting. Don't know I, what you guys are going to think about this. Um, Epic of Gilgamesh. In 1872, George Smith announced he had discovered an Assyrian account of a flood among tablets stored at the British Museum from excavations of the mid-7th century B.C. Nineveh called the Epic of Gilgamesh. The story comprises 12 tablets, one with one tablet containing a tale of a great deluge. The hero of the flood, a man named Utnapishtim, I always get it wrong, relates to an episode to Gilgamesh. He explains how the god Ea, or Ea, or E, or Ah, I don't know, warned him about an approaching judgment and told him to build a boat to save his life from the watery onslaught. Sound familiar? As the tale unfolds, the epic in some respects is nearly identical to the biblical narrative Noah in Genesis 6 to 9. This discovery created quite a stir among biblical scholars of the 19th century, and even today scholars continue to puzzle over and debate the obvious parallels between the two. So, you know. See, the flood parallel thing, everyone talks about that. That's not even the most interesting thing about the epic of Gilgamesh. What's the most interesting thing? Well, the Enkidu comes back and uh, talks to Gilgamesh about the afterlife, giving you early early mesopotamian views of life after death and i think that's pertinent to a lot of the discussions that we're having now you know so then a, a, a second at a state in fact there's flood stories in all kinds of ancient literature by the way there's there's at least nine or ten of them so that to me is not even the most interesting about the story i like to read early accounts of ancient Near Eastern thought about life after death, because we always hear that people in the Old Testament times weren't interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, but here's the thing that I find And I just don't find... Court, why the flood story is interesting, though. You're right about that, but what's interesting here is... Well, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's not Why do so many civilizations, include non-Sumerian civilizations, have mm -hmm. a flood story? Right. The Greeks have a flood that left a boat on the top of Mount Parnassus, Parnassus, Parnassus. The thing that's interesting about so many cultures having a flood story like that is that, you know, some people get queasy because they're like, oh, well, maybe Noah borrowed from, uh, maybe the authors put, you know, took the Epic of Gilgamesh and borrowed from it or somebody else. Or maybe Gilgamesh is borrowing from Noah or maybe Gilgamesh is a different thing altogether. Um, but here's the thing that's interesting. Why all these flood stories? Right. It seems to, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I think it's interesting. I just don't find it to be, that's kind of old hat for me, though. It's not the most interesting thing. Uh, about that for my current... I mean, when you talk to people about the Old Testament, especially in the discussions with Christian physicalists, too. Jim right? Amberg likes your thing about death and, and the Right. That's, that, that to me... I mean, because he's on my level, right? We've already talked about the flood and all of that years ago. We're interested in other things. Honestly, Atheist, thank you for being patient. We're about to go to Q&A in just a few moments. Let's move on quickly. Hezekiah's Tunnel, um, the most dependable water source for the city of Jerusalem during the Israelite settlement was the Gihon Spring. However, its location outside the city walls was problematic during an attack or siege. The inhabitants were cut off from the virtual uh, water, vital water source. It's not a virtual water source. It's a vital water source. In 1867, explorer Charles Warren discovered a vertical shaft cut through the bedrock, allowing the people of Jerusalem to reach the waters of the Gihon Spring from behind the city walls. The shaft was probably built originally by the Jebusites, blah, blah, blah. The interesting thing about this is... Um, my father, I've never gone through it. Did you go through the Hezekiah's Tunnel? If you'd I remember, did. If you, no, you'd remember if you did. Because if you do, or at least back in the day, like a few decades ago when my father first went, it would fill up with water occasionally. 
And so you had to get through it quickly. Um, and, and it's, it's pretty cool. I but. might have, but it, maybe it's what, what we were, when, when I was in Israel, we were dodging the Pope because Pope Benedict, whatever was there the, the year that I went back in 2009. Number nine is uh, about a crucified man found in Jerusalem, at, uh, a crucified man at Givet Hamivtar. And so, um, it, it, you know, it kind of gives you a picture of crucifixion. And part of the reason we know a lot about Roman crucifixion is because of this particular find where the nails go through the wrists. Uh, because if they went through the hands, it wouldn't have held him up, according to these archaeologists. And through the through the feet, like through, as I understood, well, the I don't know this part of the human body. Then an iron nail was driven through the right part of the frame, through the man's C-A-L-C-A-N-E-I, calcani, the largest tarsal bones in the foot, and then through the left part of the frame. Um, the free end of the nail was then bent by hammer blows. The find gives archaeologists further insight into Roman crucifixions. And then the Ugaritic texts. This is the last one. A great majority of Canaanite texts come from the site of Ugarit, modern-day Rosh Shamra, on the northern coast of Syria along with the Mediterranean Sea. Ugarit was a prominent Canaanite city-state of the 2nd millennium B.C. Major excavations have taken place at the site since 1929. A most important find at Ugarit are hundreds of texts discovered in the palace and temple areas. More than 1,500 of those tablets have been published. Ugarit reached its height in the 15th to 13th centuries B.C., the period in which written literature at the site flourished. Um, and it, it's close to Hebrew, so it gives us insights into Hebrew as well, but it also... Um, puts that writing back at that date. All right, so uh, there you go. Yeah, Eddie Vasquez is right. A nail through the heel bone must have been unimaginably painful. Okay, so uh, another movie that, that I saw in my carnal days, so I can be a PK, is The Life of Brian by Monty Python. Did you ever see Life of Brian? Of course. I, what's so wrong with and You talk about the crucifixion being horrible and like the guys yeah. are lining up to be crucified and they're like, and it's like a maitre d' there. What will you have? A deserted island or a crucifixion? He's like, crucifixion, crucifixion. And he says, what about you? Desert island. And he's like, oh, desert island. Nope, nope. Just kidding. Crucifixion for me. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, I don't. Wow. I can't believe that came back into my head. Okay. Um, let's. Monty Python. Uh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an important thing. Adam K says, yes, that crucifixion one you just mentioned was found in the first century. So that's important, too. Uh, Elizabeth Maine says crucifixion makes me nauseous to think about. Yeah. Um, OK, so let's uh, let's go into Q&A time now. That was fun. Um, if you want the discoveries from this year, they are linked in the description along with the article we just re read. So you can go look at the other one. It's already in the description. Finds from 2020. So uh, I said this year, but you know what I mean. Okay, yeah. so Q&A. Now, uh, someone asked an interesting th a couple of interesting questions that we want to get back to. Don't leave now if you're here because this is like where the things get fun and we can't go for too much longer, but uh, let's, let's take a look. Other people are mentioning this Titus Kennedy book, so I can't, I don't know anything about it to endorse it, but some people listening here are endorsing it. Um, uh, I read it if you're interested in the topic and someone says it, Give it a look. I don't ever tell people to not look at certain. <laughs> well, I don't. If I don't endorse a book, that doesn't mean don't read it, you know. But if I tell you a book stinks, it means I read it and didn't find it very compelling. So maybe we should, maybe we should give a list of all the books we think are bad. Not bad, but just not, not good. Not not very. Not worth your time. There, I mean, there's so many books out now. They're not all good. Most aren't. But Okay, someone says, Layman's Tech Lounge says, Death Penalty 
is a hot topic right now. And I see more Christians against the death penalty. If I remember correctly, you are opposed to it. Can you expound on it? Yes. So in principle, I'm, I'm, I don't have a problem with the death penalty because if you're looking for justice, you know, the, the Old Testament, uh, not that we follow the Old Testament law, but the Old Testament gives you a perspective on the thinking of Yahweh in terms of justice. And eye for eye, tooth for tooth justice, I can't imagine a more perfect expression of ideal justice than eye for eye, tooth for tooth justice. Now, when you look at Jesus and Jesus says, and I was just reading it today in Luke chapter six, that if someone strikes you on a cheek, turn the other cheek and those sorts of things. Jesus wasn't teaching that Yahweh was wrong. Jesus wasn't teaching that, that that's that the kind of that eye for eye justice isn't precisely the kind of justice that the courts should uh, should have brought in his day. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is interpersonally as individuals, as my followers, you should you should turn the other cheek and those sorts of things. Those are not in conflict. Um, well, okay. What are you going to say? They are in conflict. No, I'm saying what, what the turn, the other cheek, you know, someone's it's as if you're getting smacked and what Jesus's point there was don't be running, which has more to do with shame than self-defense or, or whatever. Jesus's point there in the Sermon on the Mount is quit taking your brothers into court over petty offenses. That's that's all it means. It wasn't about, oh, you got struck hard, like if someone punched you in the face. Really, in the Greek, it's more like you get a slap. And so what Jesus is saying, he's not overturning the Old Testament law or anything right. like that. He's just saying... He's saying, you have heard it said. When he says, you have heard it said, rather than it is written, what he's doing is he's echoing a sentiment that is a tradition that has grown, or a habit or custom that has grown around a biblical text, not really uh, tethered to the meaning of the biblical text. When he wants to get to the original meaning, he's always like, as it is written. But mm -hmm. when he's saying, these are the traditions around, he said, you've heard it said. And so that's going to evoke in them his next line about, just turn the other cheek. And then he goes into the stuff about, you know, go the extra mile, right? And, and mm -hmm. you know, and if they want your uh, cloak, give them your shirt off. What, what, he's, what he's talking about is, okay, these minor offenses are, the kingdom is not going to be, don't be running your brothers into court over these minor offenses. It has nothing to do with a lot of the things that people raise about that text, but. Yeah, so he's not saying that the court shouldn't provide eye-for-eye eye justice. He's saying, if you're one of my followers, do this, right? Yeah, if, if, if somebody does something petty, like strikes, smacks, slaps you, like if yeah. I if I walk into Braxton and give him yeah, a backhand, we, we got it. We got, don't I, take me to court over yeah, that. Just, just sit I will, there. And, but I will take you <laughs> Right, I bet you but, would. No, I wouldn't. Sissy. Uh, but here, but so, you know, let me answer the question because I'm just ramping up to the death penalty. So, um, so, uh, the, so the I think a just thing is if a man kills someone and is taken to court over that, especially if he kills multiple people or whatever, I, I think it's just if he receives the death penalty because it's actually an, a, an, an inverse of justice. If now the families of the victim, the family of the victim or the families of the victims now have to actually pay for his well-being with their tax money to house him and to keep him alive for the rest of his life, you know, I, I, there's issues there. So in principle, I don't have a problem with the death penalty. The problem I have with the death penalty is that as I look at what's happened just in my lifetime, it is not it is not um, d dispensed or carried out equally. You could have a guy who kills someone in a crime of passion. You know, his wife's cheating on him or something and he kills her lover and he gets the death penalty. But someone involved in September 11th doesn't get the death penalty. And if you're not going to be like um, uh, consistent with it, I, I don't think that's justice. A another thing that's involved in this is 
I'll tell you, it's a funny story. When I was working on my D-Min, my doctor of ministry degree, I was taking an ethics class and I actually was filling out my, uh, my uh, uh, like proposal for what my paper was going to be on my phone while I was in church. And so I was halfway paying attention to that and halfway paying attention to the sermon. Don't look at me that way, Internet. And I meant to say that I was going to argue for the death penalty. And I actually said I'm going to argue against the death penalty. And that was what was approved. And my professor was really excited to see what I would do with that. So I started researching and I actually convinced myself. Part of the reason is because if you, there are problems with each of the types of ways that we carry out the death penalty now. One of the ones that's thought to be the most humane is lethal injection. The problem mm. is this actually goes against some of the medical ethics guidelines that we have um, for doctors if I understand things correctly. And one of the things that, that is problematic there, and if we have a medical professional, maybe they can weigh in, is that you're not supposed to do medical experimentation. And you are actually doing medical experimentation every single time you do a lethal injection because everyone's body chemistry is different and you're not actually sure what's gonna kill them and how much to give. And um, so there, there's all kinds of things in that. I wrote a paper on that. Maybe I'll make it available at some point. But it got me thinking and changed my mind. But the primary thing is not that. The primary thing is that we don't carry it out consistently. And if we don't carry it out consistently, then it's problematic. And the fact that there are times where it turns out that the person is innocent and didn't commit the crime because of new evidence. That's and all true, too. There's things like that. Me, I, I'm still generally, I'm not only... Uh, favorite in principle i'm still okay with it in practice though like everything it's not perfect and i i think that we should be very very careful and even selective about how we do it not to overturn your point about the inconsistent application but i'm talking about horrific heinous crimes where of you know multiple victims and all of that kind of stuff and if you have incontrovertible evidence of the person's guilt I'm a, I don't have a problem with it. So. Honestly, atheists ask a good question. How does Christianity account for the diversity of non-Christian religious experiences better than a secular worldview? Okay, well, if Christianity is true, then everything else is false. But Christianity also accounts for, has obvious, we can use the word supernatural um, explanations for things. And one of that would be for uh, non-Christian religious experiences that... Uh, at least appear to them to be some supernatural phenomenon can be accounted for by uh, what we would call demonic activity and so forth. I mean, so we, we say that it does that on the assumption that Christianity is true, for which this whole channel is dedicated to arguing. So if you don't like the arguments for the truth of Christianity, fine. But accepting the premise that Christianity is true, Christianity can explain all of that better than any other worldview. Well, another reason that it explains it, I agree with all that, but one, another reason that it explains it better if we're doing like um, a comparison between worldviews is it explains it better because it has explanatory scope um, with uh, with secularism. You may be able to explain swaths of religious experiences because of particular uh, types of hallucination or uh, misunderstanding or confusion or brain chemistry or something like that. But not all religious experiences are supposed to be the same. And of course, Christians don't think that all claimed religious experiences are real, but we don't have a problem saying, look, we have one explanation that seems to fit 
all of the data, and that's that the supernatural is real and that there are malevolent and, malevol and benevolent uh, supernatural forces. There's God and his angels and there's the demonic. So we have one explanation that we think accounts for it, whereas with um, secular, uh, secular position, you would have to explain each one. You would have to have a variety of different explanations for each one, and so it doesn't have that explanatory scope. Also, just the sheer number of religious experience claims that we have that something like 99.9% .9 of the history of the world has believed in the supernatural and, and most of them have thought they've had some sort of a religious experience. Um, it, it just, it, it's, it doesn't prove it, but it makes it likely that at least some of these are legitimate and Christianity yeah. accounts for And Christianity that. doesn't have to assume that all of them are legitimate at all, but even if just one non-christian supernatural yeah. experience occurred christianity can still account for it right if one supernatural claim is true then then it then the supernatural exists what you can't do is say well if um like say say that nobody believed in alaska um and one person set foot on alaska on on, on the shores of alaska well then alaska exists just it just took one person um experience of alaska being real that doesn't work the other way what if one of these religious experience claims isn't true? That doesn't show that supernatural doesn't exist. It just shows that that particular case wasn't legitimate. Right. So I think there's a lot of explanatory power there. Um, let's see. Morgan Boulders says, uh, Borders, I'm sorry. Morgan Borders says, have you heard the new frog embryo robots? It's got something, some odd ethical concerns. They're saying it's the first living robot. I have not heard of that. And that sounds both frightening and super interesting. That, yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely going to start looking into it. Thank you, Morgan Borders. We yeah. will be Googling. We, yeah. Um, Maybe a show topic in the next few weeks. Okay. Let's see what else we have. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, Derek Baylor, thank you for the super chat says, what are your thoughts on prevenient grace mm. traditionalism, which is a understanding of how salvation works prominent among Southern Baptists. Traditionalism finds it, uh, unnecessary step because the gospel is sufficient. Um, that's you also, identify as a traditionalist, don't you? So you take, I don't know what it means anymore. I mean, right. I, I, yeah, I guess I, I like Leighton flowers provisionism. I'm a provisionist which is similar. Yeah. Uh, but I think both of us see prevenient grace as maybe a thing, but the reasons given for it are poor. And I yeah. do believe that the gospel um, is uh, the power of God into salvation. So I, I think that the, the power of the spirit was there at the writing of the gospel message and the production of the gospel message and the gospel is the power of God and salvation. And in that way, I would go along with provisionists and traditionalists, both Pritchett and I would agree. And Pritchett's really the one responsible for turning me on to David De Silva and all this stuff about socio rhetorical ancient stuff and all that. And, um, the way yeah, that grace and is all used, that <laughs> okay. and the way that grace is, that is used in the, in the culture at the time. It wasn't originally a religious yeah. term and it doesn't mean, and there's a great line in David De Silva where he's like, uh, this idea of irresistible grace and prevenient grace and um, uh, evanescent grace, that's not what grace means. Right. All these superlative or superfluous, take your pick, they're both, adjectives that you want to throw in front of it. Let's first get what grace is in the New Testament, according to the original author and audience, before we start adding all of this other stuff on top of it with all of these adjectives that connote different things than what they're actually on about in the Bible. And so if if you just bare bones, that which comes before, that's what prevenient means. 
then it's it's in a sense it's kind of redundant because that that's just a given and in fact if you're just going by the bare bones definition the calvinists would have to affirm irresistible or or, or prevenient grace because they think that the grace is uh, a you know in the form of regeneration or whatever is prior to faith or however they want to chalk that up everyone believes in prevenient grace if you just mean that. but what what i think a lot of armenians and not all because i've i've gone round and round with dr bassiano about this and he he says he rejects this idea too is that prevenient grace is some sort of halfway regeneration that brings you from a state of uh, inability to respond to the gospel to the point of able to say yay or nay to the gospel. All of this sounds like hocus-pocus metaphysics to me that is not on the radar of the biblical authors, that you get a halfway regeneration to make a yay or nay decision. So when you start talking about that kind of stuff, about prevenient grace, I think it's mostly just gibberish. But um, other people think that that's the kind of the stuff that's you know whatever. all right but I, I don't i don't i don't think it's a it's a gratuitous theological speculative the, thing. the programmer says dr hunter did you watch tom holland's interview with cameron if so what do you think of holland's objection that god allows children to be born into different beliefs so i did see it i loved it i thought it was fascinating everyone ought to watch it i love tom holland mm, and um uh, what what you don't like Tom Holland? No, I'm I'm saying this objection. I don't. No, the objection as he st- he actually had another objection. I didn't think either of his objections should warrant him not accepting Christianity. Um, but that objection, especially not the first, but the second one, this one, um, I, I he has to be aware of how Christians respond to this issue. Um, I would think he would be very open to the the simple answer that people like William Lane Craig and the late Billy Graham have given that uh, God judges people based on the light that they've been given. Now, most of your reformed crowd and many of your non-reformed crowd don't like that answer because they insist that there ha- it has to be in Jesus name um, and they have to actually hear the gospel message or read the gospel message. But we have answers for that, too. I, I really like um uh, the answer that in Acts 10, Cornelius is open to the gospel message, and so God sends Peter to go and bring it to him. And as I've said many times on this show, it's interesting to me that when uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board arrives at an unreached group, they, they've said classically it's been the case that those people were asking for God to give them more revelation, for God to reveal himself to them. And um, we see the, the, the we have a video on uh, Jesus appearing to Muslims and telling them to go and find the missionary and where to find a missionary and all those sorts of things. So I'm hospitable to that view, but there are a variety of views. Plus, a lot a, a lot of people who come to Christ come from families that were born with that they were born to that had yeah. a different belief systems as well. So that's just, I mean, I, we ought to pray for Tom Holland because yeah. I believe he'll come. Planning about the way reality works, like. You know, God set it up to where if two adults engage in sexual activity, procreation occurs, and and they find themselves in a circumstance where a set of belief systems prevail in that family or whatever. Okay, but, you know, what is God supposed to do? You know? You you know, it's the same thing about God preventing every instance of violence where we live in a cartoon world, right? I try to stab Braxton, and the knife turns into a hot dog or something, right? I mean, it just... This is a question we've never gotten before, Pritchett. Bella Hill wants to know, what are your thoughts on plastic surgery? Is it ethical for a Christian to get or perform it? I'm currently a pre-nursing major with an interest in cosmetics, but scared 
it's bad. My question is, or my my position on this is, if you if you have uh, if you have a de- a desire or, or or whatever to get plastic surgery, that's not a wicked desire. I had a desire to lose weight. I changed my body t- to go from bigger to healthier and more fit. Uh, to to me, you know. I don't have I don't I don't see a problem uh, with Christians getting plastic surgery. We do a lot of things to our body that are contrary to the way God made us. As uh, sorry, you can see my air quotes. That's you know uh, the argument against tattoos, the arguments against plastic surgery, whatever. Well, you don't need to get a tattoo or 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 plastic surgery to do damage to the gift of the body that God gave you. I see Baptist preachers doing the same kind of damage to their bodies that I did. That's far worse, I think, than the tattoo I have on my ankle or the tattoo I have on my arm or the, 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 we got, we got to make these brief. The facelift that somebody wants to get because, you know, and why is it different if somebody has to have reconstructive cosmetic surgery versus someone who just wants to change the way? That, I, I I don't get it. I I think it's fine. God, do you, I don't have a problem. with God it. doesn't care about. I this. have a problem with with uh, someone becoming addicted to it, as can be the case. Yeah, but Same that with you could, tattoos. And if you're a medical professional, I don't yeah. think you should facilitate someone because you're to do no harm, right? Yeah, and I don't think it's a sin to do a lot of things, but they can become addictive, like eating. So I mean, it falls into that category. I, I don't think God's gets upset if somebody decides they needed a, a tummy tuck or a facelift or gastric <clears throat> surgery. Dr. Hunter, what do you think of the non-alchemist point that Christians want other people to doubt other religions, but not their own? Um, I don't, I, yeah, there are Christians like that. A lot of Christians are scared to death of doubt to the point that they have trouble evangelizing atheists because they're afraid that the atheist is going to cause them to doubt and they think that their salvation would be in jeopardy. So uh, there are Christians like that. I don't think that's how it should be. I, I don't think we should like seek out doubt as if doubt in and of itself is a good thing. Um, that can actually lead to mental health problems if that's all you're doing all the time is, is looking to doubt everything. And of course, I've pointed out many other times that this idea that, that Dillahunty and others have, that this skepticism that says that uh, you, know, you, you wanna err on the side of not believing because uh, it, it can be dangerous to believe things that aren't true. Well, likewise, it can be dangerous not to believe certain things that are true and just right. as dangerous. And so uh, my position would be there's a healthy sense of doubt Unfortunately, Christian Christianity has answers that we think we can use to address those doubts. Now, what I would encourage someone to do, and I know what they're going to say about this. Um, I know what skeptics are going to say about this, but it just seems to be the case. There's studies that have been done that I cited once in a video response to somebody um, on doubt. I have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of stuff on doubt on this channel. And it's it's uh, if if Christians are experiencing doubt and they go to other Christians in a support network to work through the answers to those that come from Christian apologetics in a support group of other believers, then the retention rate is is really, really high. If they are rejected by others or they're shunned because of their doubts, or they just don't take it to anyone and they just go off on their own, then there's a much higher chance that they're gonna end up walking away from the church, however you describe that soteriologically. So he's probably right uh, that, that Christians want people to doubt their other religions, but not their own. Um, and I'm perfectly fine if they don't doubt, doubt Christianity because I think Christianity is true and I think it's important. But I'm not against people experiencing doubt or doubting Christianity yeah. because we have answers. And we've also, it, we encourage people to go on this channel to go read material that would actually 
at least the attempt of the author is to get you to doubt your belief and go go wrestle with it. We're Honestly, Atheist says, would you consider my personal experience and intuitions of a naturalistic worldview as reasonable evidence for me to hold to a secular worldview? So the reason I think this question is coming up is probably because um, that I have I've said things. That's one of the reasons that I hold to libertarian freedom and a strong sense of morality is because I believe that uh, because I, I don't just say that it's a strong intuition. I say that if I find in myself a, a belief that seems impossible to doubt, it seems almost impossible to doubt, um, then you have the principle of credulity. I am warranted in holding that belief until such a time as someone gives me reason to believe that it's an overwhelming reason to believe that it's not the case or a, a reason that supervenes that. And I think that with naturalism, uh, I don't know what your intuitions are. If you're telling me that you have not just a strong uh personal experience or intuition about it, but that you have such an intuition that it seems almost impossible to doubt that naturalism is true. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how one gets there. That would make someone a, some, some very strongly in the camp of atheist in the traditional sense of the word. atheist. Right. Let, let me answer the, but the, I would say we would give you the evidence that we think is a reason to reject that position. Yeah. Let, let me give you the flip side of that. Okay. I, I, if I I'm good with your answer insofar as you mean is your intuition in and of itself reasonable evidence for you holding to a secular worldview what you said is fine but I would say no for the same reason that I don't think that one's personal ex religious experience um, and intuition is enough for them to hold a Christian worldview there's got to be that plus so in and of itself I don't know uh, if that's reasonable to hold the worldview, I do think it counts as a notch of reasonable evidence added to other things that you might find about the natural world and, and philosophical arguments that, that give you a secular worldview. Taken in and of itself that it's just your intuition about the natural world alone as reasonable evidence for a secular worldview, no. But it can count as one thing in a pot, uh, of other things of evidence uh, to make the worldview itself reasonable, if that makes sense. So it's reasonable evidence uh, in a pot of other things uh, that, that you count as evidence for secular worldview. But intuition alone, I don't think, is, is enough to hold uh, a particular worldview, whether it's Christian or uh, secular or Muslim or whatever other worldview you have. Okay, um, I was trying to find, someone asked a pretty good question. Uh, what, Timotheus Ward, uh, $10, thank you, says, what Christian recording artists do you think are just as good as or even better than their their non-religious peers? Well, um, th That's for you to answer. Mute Math is pretty good. Um, I don't know if they identify as a Christian band, but they are Christians. And um, Yeah, do we mean yeah. like Christians who are intentionally recording gospelized music. Uh, I think or, we're thinking or, of legit Christian bands. Like or, that, but not Christians who just do music. Right, that identify as Christian bands. There is There are a couple that I was listening to lately, and I'm trying to find their names here because I've already forgotten. Uh, Danger Scene might be one of them uh, that I found. Um, I thought Switchfoot was pretty good, but they're old now. Crowder, I think, is pretty good. But there was, one, there was a couple of new ones I'd never heard of. Yeah, Danger Scene. Loyals. Well, let's just stick with that. Danger scene and loyals. There was another one that I can't find now. 
But anyway, um, I think they're pretty good. All right, let's move on. I, to... I think there's probably a lot that are as good. I don't know about better. Um, <laughs> I've heard a lot of good Christian rock bands. I've heard a lot of better secular rock bands. I've heard a lot of good Christian hip-hop artists. I've heard a lot of better secular hip-hop artists. There's probably some in there, you know, that rise to be as good, but Christian music on the whole is not better than secular music as far as talent-wise. I, I well, don't think. I, I don't think it's a fair comparison, and the reason is because there's a much smaller market. There's a much smaller segment, so you have much fewer bands, so there's less chance for one to be spectacular than you have in a sea of secular artists. Right, because there's a lot of horribly untalented people in secular music. Hey, love you guys' channel. I have a slight problem with watching live. I'm used to watching everything double speed. Can you guys speak faster? No, unfortunately, we can't. Oh, um, absolutely, I can. I can speak fast. I can speak fast. If you want me to speak fast, it's no problem. Your problem Mr. is Phil Fox. louder. Mr. Phil Fox had a... Oh, yeah. Um, I enjoyed your conversation with Chris Dates about physicalism. Extremely intriguing stuff. Shout out to my man Prime. You got it. Yeah. And I'm going to be on his channel Sunday the 24th to finish our conversation about Calvinism. For all the folks who missed me dumping on Calvinism, go subscribe to his channel and stay tuned. Go watch my previous video on his channel. Go watch all the other videos on his channel in preparation to watch my next appearance on his channel. Yeah, here's a and good one. Bella Hill asks again about the uh, you know surgeries. Uh, where do I draw the line? If I'm okay with this, then why not transgender surgery since they both change the body? I would not. Um, I can't tell you what to do and I'm not someone who advises on medical stuff, but I can tell you as a Christian from a Christian worldview, I, I don't think I would be, I don't think I could carry out a transgender surgery. No. Right. Because, that, because that, it's not just changing the appearance of the body. It's facilitating a denial of reality and God's, uh, you know, gendered male and female he created them and you're denying that reality so that that's where i would say that that's a worldview difference that's not saying my nose is horrible and i'd like it to change and i can afford for it to change and i'm not putting my family's you know mortgage in in no not mine but i'm saying if somebody's saying that and i'm not it's the same with gambling, you know, or whatever. You're not going to put your family on the streets if you go and get something done to your nose to make you feel better. I don't, if you have the means to do it, I don't, I don't know. And the only pushback people would say is, okay, what about scarring and tattooing in the Old Testament? Well, that has a specific context in the ancient Near Eastern world about ownership and all of this other stuff. So I, I if those things aren't applying, if you're not being branded, so to speak, then yeah, I, yeah, I don't, got it. I don't see it. Uh, yeah. for king and country are good. Yeah. I, I, I understand why Christians ask these questions, but I, I, I don't understand the Christian objections to it. I actually did a conference with for king and country where they sang before I went up and spoke and, uh, they were really cool guys in person too. They're the brothers, I think of Rebecca St. James, who was popular in the nineties in the Christian music scene. She had that song, God, I think. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so we're getting down to the end, and I really need to go. The preacher's kid, indeed. You and I listen to very— I've got to get— For all of the common interests we have in music, we also have very vastly different experiences. Someone said, and I can't—oh, here it is. Punchbowl haircut said, I love to picture Pritchett driving in an Escalade listening to hip-hop. Well, he doesn't have an Escalade, and he's probably instead listening to Christian— I did have an 87 80. light blue Cadillac sedan DeVille, though. It was the best car I've ever owned. I've never owned a car better than that, and I miss it, and I totaled it, and I've been heartbroken about it that okay uh touchy subject but i did have a cadillac sedan deville and it was an 87 model and it was super awesome i don't like any cadillacs 
Thank Since you for this question, Angel WVM. Uh, I don't mean to cut off Pritchett, but we got to go. Uh, what is the best book or books to buy addressing the problem of evil? Well, I think we got this question last week from somebody. I'm yeah. not sure, but I said uh, God, Freedom, and Evil by Alvin Plantinga. You said something The by, Many Faces of Evil by John Piper. Uh, not John Piper. Feinberg. Feinberg, yeah. Um, and uh, and then I think The Evidential Argument from Evil, which is a collection, it's a compendium of essays from uh, theists and non-theists. Start there, you'll so. be fine. Yeah. All right. And, and you can hear Braxton Hunter's lecture series on... Patrons have access to eight yeah. hours of me talking about it with PowerPoint. Yeah. Super good lecture series, which means what I'm saying is he summarized all the stuff in all those books he recommended. And Cordy says I would expect hours. him to be driving a Bronco. And he's probably not listening to hip-hop music. He's listening to 80s pop music is what I hear when we work out. All right. So, uh, this has been fun. We love all of you. And, uh, this is the first live stream on the new computer that our patrons helped us to get so that we could. It is so nice. We thank you guys so much for making this possible because we could not afford this kind of stuff without you guys. And it's only going to get better. Definitely true. And remember, if you become a $50 or more patron, you're going to get a page and maybe two out of William Paley's natural. Whoops. William Paley's Natural Theology. And if you are already, I need you to send me your, uh, in Patreon, go go to Patreon and send me your postal address. I sent out emails about that, but if you didn't get it, um, make sure to do that so I can go ahead and send it. All right, listen, this has been a blast and we'll see you next time. I don't have, an, I don't have a closeout screen. This is just going to be it. It's just going to end so abruptly. We love you and we hate to do that to you, but we'll see you next time on Trinity. Radio.